Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you have a copy of those notes that were in your bulletin, I encourage you to take those out. They're going to aid us this morning and aid you, I think, and hope and pray as we uh, unpack Galatians 1, the remainder of Galatians 1. Last week, we started our study through the book of Galatians, looking at the first nine verses. And Paul immediately jumps into the context of his, uh, his letter, this epistle, this letter that's been written to a variety of churches. Unlike uh, many other times where Paul addresses one specific church, the churches of Galatia uh, were many, as it says there. And so once again, this is an argument for uh, in light of the local assembly. I'm absolutely for the local assembly. Uh, and, and not only see in Scripture the universal, invisible church in its sense that all believers who, would, uh, who have repented of sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus from, from a corporate sense, but also believe in the local assembly as it's uh, taught in the Scriptures. And these are one of the passages that can help you, that if there's no such thing as a local church, uh, then why are they churches in the plural sense? And the reason there are plur- a plurality of churches in a sense that the churches of Galatia shows that there's not only an in, invisible church as far as a corporate one for all known believers on the planet, but there's also this uh, you, you know, uh, local church like we are existing in today. And so what were those churches? Who were those churches? Uh, you see this in Paul's first missionary journey, uh, Acts 13, beginning in verse 14 through 52. You see Antioch and Pisidia uh, was one of the first churches he had encountered there in the Asia Minor area or uh, the church of Galatia. You see Iconium, Acts 14, verse 1 through 7, Lystra, Acts 14, 8 through 20, which, by the way, as we're going to talk in a few moments, is where Paul was, uh, they attempted to stone him to death in Lystra. And so one of these churches, why he's so uh, astonished is how much he was willing to suffer for Christ's sake to get the gospel to them, that they were so quickly to be able to move away from that gospel to something else. And so uh, Lystra in Acts 14, and then Derby, uh, Acts 14, 21 through 23. And then he made this journey back from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch, and then uh, eventually made his way back to uh, the ascending church of Antioch, not Antioch and Pisidia. Um, but uh, the other Antioch. And so in that you begin to see these are the churches he's writing to. And immediately Paul, from the outset, is upset about something. And he doesn't spend long commending them or even gives no commendations. He immediately just begins to say who he is, where his authority is derived from, who he's writing to, and now a brief context of the gospel. And then he dives into his astonishment in verse 6 that they are so quickly deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which in verse 7 says is no gospel, um, that ultimately they are beginning to trust in something beyond that. And we didn't unpack last week what that different gospel was, but you're going to begin to see, and I was intentional not to be able to do so because it really didn't find itself in the text, and it's only slightly alluded to in this passage uh, that we'll be studying today, but I'll go ahead and unpack. It was Judaism. And so ultimately, as you're going to see throughout the context of the remainder of the book, that Paul is addressing a law, grace, then law mindset. And so we would believe that the Bible would teach that uh, the law is to help show us our, our need for a Savior. That's what the Bible says in Galatians 3, as we'll come to a little later on. It's our schoolmaster or our guardian or our tutor to begin to show us that we needed a Messiah, a Savior that's going to come to redeem us. And so no man is justified by the law. But then when you begin to see and embrace the gospel, it's by God's grace, unmerited favor, that he grants us grace. And so as, as he starts his letter, grace to you, which is the source of our salvation, which is the source of uh, our the source of the gospel. He says, grace, then peace, grace and peace to you and peace being the result of the gospel. And so uh, it's all of God. He grants us peace through grace. And that's how we are, have a restored relationship with the Lord uh, with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what Paul's aiming to target. And so in this, he's got to answer some questions that are uh, inferred in the text to help us to begin to see well, how is, 
What is he doing and what was to begin to challenge? Well, evidently after Paul had left on his first, second, third missionary journey, ultimately there was some false teachers who had came in. And this isn't news. We begin to see this even as we read the book of Acts that uh, ultimately the Judaizers or those who were um, of the law uh, were wanting to come in and begin to say, listen, whether they had, uh, believed or assumed Paul was making an easy believism maybe. And so they were thinking, oh, man, he's just making it really easy for all the Gentiles to come to faith in Christ. And, and yet yeah, that wasn't it at all. It's the very basis for salvation is to realize it's not, you're not justified by faith. Whether they thought it was an easy believism, uh, they were clearly deceived in understanding what the grace of God was about in their own relationship uh, with God or lack thereof. And so ultimately Paul is, what, what, that might have been a criticism. One of the other criticisms you see not only in this, uh, Paul addresses immediately was his, his term of being called an apostle, the definition of him being called an apostle. And was if they could undermine, they being the, the Judeos, could undermine that he had not received this uh, apostleship from God, uh, then ultimately they could say, well, if he's cr- just called himself an apostle, then why should anyone listen to him? And so he begins to address that. And this is what Paul has begun to work him, himself through. And then he wants to then elevate, thirdly, what the clear gospel is. And so this is the context of Paul's mindset of what he's out to accomplish in this. And so the first two chapters, you're going to see Paul addressing his authority, his apostleship. Chapters 3 and 4, you're going to see him clarify the gospel. And then in chapters 5 and 6, how that's played out, uh, that gospel's played out in grace living. And that's what you're going to see toward the end of the book. And so I want us to begin to just walk through the remainder of chapter 1 is Paul then, whereas he was addressing a different gospel in verses 1 through 9, is now answering a defense uh, of this gospel that he has put forth, the accurate biblical gospel, the one and only true gospel, a defense of Paul's, uh, the, uh, Paul's defense of that very gospel. And we see in verses 10 through 24. So how does he do it? How does he begin to communicate his defense? Well, the first thing you're going to see there in your notes is the aim of Paul's message. Paul wants to begin to communicate to them what his purpose is in communicating the gospel to begin with and why that gospel is so important. That ultimately, that it's not just something that you can take or leave. The gospel is a different type of news than anything else you will come across. When you begin to think about the gospel and what it's interpreted or what it's called, it's good news. So it's the very definition of the term gospel is good news is how it's translated. Now, we hear news and we're always and, and regularly bombarded with all types of news. You get news feeds on your, your iPhone or your, your Android or whatever phone you might have. And so there's a variety of feeds, whether it's Twitter or a variety of other things through uh, all types of sources and resources. You can have various apps on your phone that you begin to look up. It has a variety of news sources. You can watch it at 6 o'clock or at 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock on your television and a variety of other means on your iPad or a variety of other sources that you just constantly are receiving news. And you can either receive it or reject it. You can pay attention to it or not. And it has probably for the most part very little negative effects whether or not you pay attention to it or not. You can go about your life. You can go about uh, your days and it's not really going to be a negative impact. There are occasional uh, news sources that could be able to help you that it might impact you whether or not there was a wreck on 85. If you were traveling into work that morning and, you, and your commute takes you that source or a variety of things, there was an, a... Uh, a blizzard that we had a few years ago that shut down all of Atlanta, right? And you might have gotten impacted because you didn't pay attention to news. But on an eternal significance, there's going to be very little that's going to be in the news that's going to impact you. And this news is quite different. This news is what the picture of the in, in uh, Old Testament times or even in a variety of times where there was a sovereign or a king who or queen who was in control of all things. They would send out a herald, and the herald would go to the, the town square, and he would say, Hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king. And it was really important that you would listen to that message because it had direct implications to your life. It was a message that you needed to understand and hear and receive. And this is the type of message of the gospel. This good news isn't one that you should just... To take it or leave it doesn't really impact you. It's one that we should hear, heed, and receive. And this is why Paul's his aim is to make sure they heed and they receive this message. That if you begin to thwart or undermine God's, God's gospel, it has implications and eternal implications at that. And so Paul says, man, his aim of his, his message was not the approval of man, but the approval of God. And that's when his, that was the aim of Paul's message, the approval of God and not man. You see this right out of verse 10. He says, for am I not seeking the approval of man or uh, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? That's his question. And you think, well, what a weird question. Why, why would he 
Why would he place it? He just went through this different gospel. And then he asked this question. And I know we haven't stopped last week a little shy of this, this verse. I want to back up and just give you the context. So in verse 6, he says, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him, him Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, there is another, but there are some who would trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul and those brothers who are with him, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So twice in this passage, he says, if we come to you again, or an angel comes to you and preaches a different gospel, may they be devoted to destruction. That's what the word anathema means or translates. Devoted to destruction. And so he says, and I want to be very clear to you, if we or anyone else comes, and that was more of a hypothetical, Paul's not, as a result of being a follower and believer of Jesus Christ, is not going to turn to a different gospel. An angel, a true, genuine uh, angel, is not going to be uh, sharing a different gospel, right? So there's more of a hypothetical. And then he moves to an actual where he says, he reminds them, as we've said before, so I now say again, if anyone has preached you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema, a curse, devoted to destruction. And so he begins to, he poses this question. One light of that, therefore, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, the very aim of my message, this gospel message, is the approval of God, not of man. Otherwise, I'm not going to go around saying people who preach a different gospel are going to be, uh, ultimately are going to be devoted to destruction. That's not a very popular message. And that's the same way as us as a pastor. Oftentimes, it's come constantly bombarded with, hey, allow this to happen. Let's, let's include this and let's do this. And many times, those things aren't bad. But it can begin to water down what the purpose is of us gathering and why we're here and what, what the purpose is for us to equip the saints to understand the gospel and how that gospel is the very root and the central theme of everything that we do. God wasn't, it wasn't by accident the guy was looking for some kind of means later on to be able to try to explain the gospel. He says, let me think how I could kind of explain the gospel. Hey, you know what? Let's use marriage. That would be a really great illustration. We can kind of use a husband and a wife, and they kind of already get that. And so uh, that would be kind of a good thing. Let's use that. And you know what we could also use? We could use children. I mean, people love their kids most of the time, right? And so if they love their kids, man, we could try to use that as an illustration. And we'll use children as an example. What does the Bible say, though? The Bible doesn't say that these, these were afterthoughts. He was just trying to come up with some kind of cool ways to try to explain the gospel. At the very beginning, God created male and female with the express purpose that he was going to use it for his glory. And it was going to be the very foundation, not only for the gospel to be understood, but to be propagated. That's God's plan. And that this children that would be born out of this relationship would be, would be able to demonstrate God's glory forever and ever and ever. And so then God chooses to use that from the very beginning. It wasn't an afterthought. And we begin to think, that's why then the church's foundation is based upon godly marriages that have godly families. That from those godly marriages and godly families, that then the church is founded upon that. That we would then even select our leaders, our elders from godly men who lead their, their homes in the manner that God would have prescribed in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So it's not an afterthought. Before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain. There was a predetermined, predestined plan for God to implement all of this. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. And so Paul's aim is saying, I'm not here. I know it's not a popular message. And ultimately, people always want to begin to collapse the gospel to be more of a consumeristic mindset. And Paul says, That's, if you begin to do that, you're going to lose. You're going to water down what the gospel is. We're going to fight. We're going to resist that. I don't want it to be grace works. I mean, works, grace, works or law, grace Law, I want you to be able to see its law is to show you you need grace. And it ends and lives and has its being in grace. And so this is exactly what his desire is. So I want you to be able to understand, I'm not out for the approval of man. And if I were, I I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, ultimately, since the gospel has been preached... Uh, there's been those who had resisted. And even back in John chapter 12, send your notes there, or not, you just write it in your notes here. John 12, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses and we're going to navigate through a few other verses. But I want you to just listen to this. 
So Jesus is going about teaching and preaching. He, he comes across many who's hearing the gospel that he's communicating and preaching. In John twelve forty two, he says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, the religious sect, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were people who had believed in Christ, but ultimately didn't want to confess him before, before man because ultimately what? They were going to be kicked out of the synagogues. And they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogues because why? They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. You see, then, so what was Paul's aim then? If it's not the approval of man, what was Paul's aim? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 begins to give us some understanding. In verse 6 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, he says this. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, meaning in my physical body or, or not in my physical body and with the Lord, we, uh, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to please Christ. That's His aim. That's what He is out. And so then, how do you please Christ then? If His goal was to be able to please Christ, how does a person please Christ? Well, the Bible's not silent on that either. In, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible said, tells us what it is that would please God. 11, chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And so here you see it very clear. Paul says, my purpose and my aim is that you would, that I would please God and that you would please God. And the only means and manner that you will please God isn't by some works that you do. It's by faith in Christ alone. So where do you, how do we understand what faith is? And where, do we, we, where is that uh, provided clarity to us and what we're placing our faith in? We don't place faith in faith. We don't believe in just belief, right? It's not about you being sincere. You can be absolutely convinced and you can be absolutely sincere and you can be absolutely committed to the wrong things. I believe there are Mormons and Jehovah Witness and a variety other of uh, cults that would be out there that absolutely are sincere in what they do are committed to what they do problem even maybe committed to many of more committed than many of us i remember being in india and just hearing the the, the, the muslim call to prayer and just seeing going to temples and just being able to observe these these worship uh or lack, uh, in their mindsets worship services and these people are sincere they believe in what they're doing. But it's wrong. It won't save them. And yet at the same time, that's their aim. Their goal is to be pleasing to God. And yet it's, Paul says, listen, it's, you need faith. And so Paul says, the goal here, man, if it were just about pleasing man, there's a lot of easier things I would rather do. So how, how does Paul then demonstrate that he's... That, man, his aim is the approval of God and not the approval of man. What's well, evidenced in your notes is evidenced in Paul's words, verses 8 and 9. 8 to 9. His words begin to talk about those being devoted to destruction, those being accursed. And that's not very friendly speech, is it? This exclu- exclusivity of Christ. You can't get to Christ in a variety of different means. Not all road leads to God. Right? Paul's making it very clear, exclusive in his words, how he's uh, providing instruction and clarity. You see, at the very end of his letter, he says the same things. Flip over probably one page in your Bible to uh, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. Paul's now going to wrap up. We're in the beginning chapter of the letter. I want you to see how he's going to kind of summarize the ending of this letter to the, the churches of Galatia. That'd be Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. What does he say to them? He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. It's this good showing in the flesh. He's saying, the ones who would criticize me of being trying to, to be, have, approve, have the approval of man, or is that, that's actually what they're out to accomplish. They want to have a good showing in their flesh. They want to have a good showing uh, in their circumcision. Why? They want to elevate the traditions of man more than the, the uh, theology of God. The clarity of God, the gospel of God. And so what they criticized me, I was saying, he's not an apostle, that they were trying to undermine my message, that it's all about trying to please man and maybe trying to water down the gospel and make it easy so the Gentiles could get into the kingdom. He says, all those, exactly what those of the circumcision party are doing. 
It is those who want to make a good showing in flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul makes it very clear. This different gospel is they're trying to convert people to Judaism so they could be born again. And Paul says that's absolutely ridiculous. It was out of circumcision that people were being born again. So why would you fall back into that? It was out of the law that grace abounded. That you'd be dead to the law and be lived to Christ, as the scriptures would teach us, and we're going to see later on. And so it's evidence in Paul's words that he's not out to please man. He's not trying to make a good showing in his flesh like the circumcision party are. He's trying to make sure they understand you need to please God. And you can't come to God in any way you want. He's prescribed the means to come to him. Repentance and faith in the gospel. And that's why we want to make a big deal of the gospel. So it's evidence in Paul's words and it's evidence in Paul's works. Not only in his words, but in the works. The very actions that, that are fleshed out in Paul's life. You see, once again, stay in Acts chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 6 verse 17. We're still at the end of the book. And see how Paul ends the letter. How does Paul end this letter a letter to the churches in Galatia. Here's what he says. For now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is why he says at the beginning of the letter, that man, if I were still trying to please man, as and it's, if I were still, there was a time where Paul was trying to please man. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. He said, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. It's what servant means, bond servant, slave. Man, if it's out, my aim was to approval of man. I'm not doing this job, at least not this way. There's a lot of men who are doing this job in a manner that's to the approval of the people that they're trying to get to hear them and aren't a faithful witness to the actual scriptures. Lots, you can find many charlatans. But I'm not going to do it the way Christ would tell me to do it because that way is hard. Matthew chapter 7 is that gate's narrow. The road is hard. But the road's broad. And the way's easy that leads to destruction. And just a reminder, on that road, you're not seeing large signs that says, to hell. It says to heaven. Like Those who are preaching that gospel are saying, or that, which is no gospel, preaching this easy believism are saying, this is the road to heaven. But Jesus and Paul are saying it's narrow and it's hard. Few are those who find it. And so it's evidence in Paul. So when he says, I would not, I would not be a servant of Christ if I was still trying to please man. What does he mean by that? Well, it's in your notes there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to just read what Paul had endured. He's once again right in this particular passage, right into the church in Corinth. It's his second letter to the church in Corinth. And once again, he's having to address his apostleship and whether or not he lines up with the other super apostles and whether or not he's really, they think of him as they would think of everyone else. And Paul just defending this. And so he begins to talk through uh, this understanding of, of what he's endured and, and what he suffered. Look, beginning in verse 24. When he says in Galatians chapter 6 that his, his body bears the marks of Christ, what does that mean? Well, you're going to get an understanding in 2 Corinthians. So I love letting the scripture interpret itself. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. All right, so what's that math? Somebody, a math major, give it to me. How many lashes has Paul received already? 195 marks upon his back. So he's not kidding. He can take off his cloak and he can take off his tunic and he can lower it down to... to, to mid-body mid, mid here, allow them to see his back, and they can absolutely see the marks of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You think he's trying to be, win the approval of man? I'm not sure I would have endured the second, third, or fourth, or even fifth beating. After the first, I might have said, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to be a closet Christian, and I'm going to just hang out in secret. But Paul didn't do that, right? He would go to the next town, and to the next town. Once again, reminder, one of the churches he's writing to is the church in Lystra. Where he was stoned to death. And let me tell you, it's not like they just kind of threw a couple of little rocks at him, right? And they're trying to get a dog off your property and just kind of threw a couple of rocks. These are massive stones. 
And when you're, you're going to stone people, it, you're, like, you're going to take a really good chance. That like, you're gonna, we'll make sure you do the job, right? Because that was blasphemy they thought he was doing, performing. And so they were thinking they were honoring God by stoning him to death. And so they stoned him, assuming he was dead, right? This is what he endured. And so 45 times I received in the hands of Jews, 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, that's Lystra, Acts chapter 14, we just talked about, 14, uh, verse 8 through 20. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from everything and, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Hence, why he's writing to the churches of Galatia. And I'm burdened for you. I want you to know the gospel, he's saying. This gospel that my body bears the marks of. This isn't a game to be flippant with. That you can just desert Christ whenever you want. Paul's pleading with them. And this is why no words of commendation. Man, what's the challenge here isn't just they do methodology different, right? That's what he did in 2 Corinthians. He's in verse in 2 Corinthians. He's addressing a church that has bad, method, uh, bad methodology, meaning how they carry out their theology. Their theology wasn't wrong. Their methodology was wrong. How do you confront a brother and sister in Christ? Do you take a brother and sister to Christ to, to, before judges and, and sue them? How do you do the Lord's Supper and do it in a manner that actually helps them and so they actually benefit from being here, not harmed by being together for the Lord's Supper? These are the things that Paul's addressing. But it's not the gospel. And so that's why he can start the letter and he commends them and encourages them. But in Galatians, it's of utmost importance because why? This can damn people to hell. And so no commendations. Straight to the gospel. I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I cannot believe this. Why aren't you tracking with me? After... After all you've seen, that I would have endured. Not this about me, but because this just show you this message is true. And this is the heart of it. So as they're challenging Paul's apostleship, Paul's authority, Paul's gospel, one of the means of his defense is to be able to say, look at the aim of my message. Do you really believe this is for my good pleasure? Who think it's for me to become healthy, wealthy, and wise? Look at my back. Look at my body. You think this is... Do you think this is, this is helpful to me? Do you think I'm really trying to gain the approval of man? And so Paul, one of Paul's aims of his, or one of Paul's defense to the gospel is the aim of his message. That's the approval of God, not the approval of man. Which then begs the question, second question. Okay, well, we, we see that you're sincere. We see that you're willing to suffer for it, Paul. But many people are willing to suffer for what they believe to be true. Right? I mean, guys who fly planes into buildings thinking that they're going to receive a harem of virgins when they, when they die... And they're going to be in the third heaven and they're all excited about these, you know, their future. I think they believe it. Once again, it's no, the reality is, but is it true? And that's why then the second point, it's not only the aim of Paul's message that he's sincere, but it's the origin of Paul's message. Where did he get it? Where did he derive this message? And you see a couple of things. Number one, the good news of the gospel does not begin with man. That's what Paul's aiming at. The good news of the gospel does not begin with man. Verses 11 and 12. Paul says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 11 and 12. So the good news of the gospel does not begin with man. What does that mean? On verse 11, it speaks of this. It was not the result of man's thinking. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which preached by me is not man's gospel. This wasn't just the idea or invention or ingenuity of a bunch of men who got together and said, what can we do to like start a new religious sect? Right? Let's just come up with something. Right? Judaism's kind of old and hasn't really been working and people were kind of like trying to look for other things. And so let's just come up with something new. No, it's not man's idea at all. It's not a result of man's thinking. And it was not, a re- and it was not received by man's teaching. Verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Once again, showing his apostleship. Now, the reality was, did Paul, had Paul understood maybe some aspects of the gospel? Well, yeah, of course. Right? How do we know that? 
Well, Paul's own testimony was he hated the church. And he was persecuting the church because what? He thought that same gospel was blasphemy. He was zealous. We're going to see in a few minutes the evidence of his walk with, with Christ and so in his life and how that's transforming this message. And so he was anti that. So he, in some sense, had seen the gospel or at least observed the gospel from a distance. And he hated it with a passion, with a vengeance, with a zeal that was beyond understanding. So Paul was absolutely against this. What Paul's trying to, re- to communicate was the gospel wasn't received by him by the teaching of other people. And this is really at the heart of Judaism. Because Judaism would be through a lineage of people. And it would be taught by your parents through teaching. Right? So it would be received from one parent, or from a parent to a child. How do we know this? The Bible instructs this type of process. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right? You should be able to instruct your children in the way, right? To be able to teach them about who God is. And so he's communicating that, man, this wasn't man's idea, this gospel. Whereas in Judaism, it was communicated that that's how they should be able to teach. And so he wasn't taught, nor has he received it from them. And so receiving it would be from his parents. And he says, man, I didn't get this from my parents. And I wasn't taught it. And so then the other way is that him being of the, of, of the Pharisees, there was to be able to walk through the traditions of man and how he was then with rigorous teaching would be taught the laws of God and the, all the additional uh, 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 extra biblical laws. And he says this, all that I was taught, the gospel was not included. It was hidden from them. So this didn't come from man. The gospel, the, the news, the good news of gospel does not begin with man. This begins with God, which is your next point. The good news of the gospel begins with God. The gospel begins with God. That's why the opening of our Bible, in the beginning, what? God. You start the gospel with man, you're going to get it wrong every single time. You have to start the gospel with God. Otherwise, this makes sense. And so, the good news of the gospel begins with God. And in your notes, God revealed himself to Paul in Christ Jesus, from verse 12, for I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Once again, supporting his apostleship, supporting his authority, that his authority is rooted in, not man's teaching. So here's a variety of the challenges that could have been out there. Paul's just making this stuff up. So that may be one of the challenges. Judaizers came came in and said, Paul, man, he's just making this stuff up. He just kind of came up with this on his own. And he says, I didn't come up with this on my own. This isn't man's idea. This is God's idea. Number two, they say, well, he's not really an apostle. Right? You don't see the other apostles kind of justifying themselves. Why? Because it's very common that they walked with Jesus and were with Jesus' baptism throughout his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And then even after that, after Judas was removed through his, his uh, showing that he was a son of perdition and he, he hanged himself, ultimately they chose Matthias. And so even that, you don't see this challenge about Matthias and his apostleship. But you see a challenge with the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he wasn't there at the first as far as the beginning of the ministry. But Paul's saying, but listen, I did receive it from Jesus Christ himself. This came from him. And so many might say, you're not, you know, you didn't receive this from Jesus Christ. You went up to, you went up Jerusalem and you were taught this might be some of the other apostles. And so they're kind of trying to undermine who he is. Because they can undermine his authority, undermine his apostleship. Then why believe his message? And so he's communicating to them. Listen, I didn't receive this from, as he's going to communicate later on. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then verse 18, and then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, uh, what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then he says, then I went to the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. So he said, listen, I'm not gone to be taught this by other people. Jesus Christ revealed this to me. And so I'm not lying to you. Trust the words that I communicate. This was not received by man. This was received from a revelation of God himself. Now, how did this revelation take place? What, is, what happened? And this is what you see is our third point. You see, the aim of Paul's message was the approval of God and not man. The evidence in his words, it's evidence in his works. You see the origin of Paul's message. The message did not come from man, did not originate with man. It wasn't a result of man's thinking. It was not received by man's teaching. But ultimately, this good news of the gospel begins with God, and God revealed it to Paul 
in Christ Jesus. And so how does this look? And then Paul uses the remainder of the verses, 13 to 24, to walk through his testimony. How he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a great defense. Because in this defense is going to begin to continue to undermine Judaism through how he received this. And so you see at first the evidence of Paul's message is his own life. So you see the aim of his message, the origin of his message. Now the evidence of this message that it's not the approval of man, um, but the approval of God. That this was from God is now going to be evidenced in Paul's own life. And so you see Paul's life before Christ. What was Paul's life before Christ? That's where he begins up in verse 13. How, why did he receive this? How did he know this was a revelation of Jesus Christ? He says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now, one of the tips, one of the first clues you're going to have here of what this debate is over, this different gospel is over. One of the first clues you have, his former life in Judaism. And as you continue to read, just to highlight, I always want to encourage you, in your, as you study the Bible, just to pay attention to how you study. So how, it's the best way to study. Look for, always keep things in context, right? So you want to read the passage again and again and again to make sure you have a grasp of the understanding of what's taking place. As you read through the, through the passage, you want to make sure that you're, you're defining things based upon the context, and then one of the other things you want to be able to look for is words that are repeated over and over and over. And throughout this letter, you're going to see Judaism and circumcision repeated again and again and again. It's going to help to give you a clue of what the passage is about. So it's one of the first times you're going to see uh, Judaism. And so Paul's going to talk about this. Why would I go back to Judaism when I was in Judaism? You've heard of my former life in Judaism. It's not a, it's not a surprise to anybody how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was a Judaizer. This is, this is my life. This is how I lived. And he says in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, as we walk through this, I want you to begin to see Paul's life before Christ. It was one of religiousness, right? Paul was extremely religious. But he wasn't born again. He wasn't a follower of Christ. He would go to hell when he died. If he had not been had a revelation of Jesus Christ. He had not encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether through vision or through the gospel. Or both as is in his case. He was religious. Paul was sincere. He was zealous. He was sincere man. So I'm, I want to do this with zealousness. Because why? I think it's right. And he was committed. And in each of those, to be religious, to be sincere, to be committed, doesn't mean that would equate to salvation alone if you believe in the wrong things. And this is what Paul is saying. What was the wrong things? Man-centeredness. Man-centeredness. So what it says here, as you just read through it, just follow along. I've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. See this? Look what I can do. Look what I'm doing. Look how I'm trying to work this. Look how zealous I am. Look at the things I'm trying to do. Look at how I'm working, striving, ministering, advancing. Paul, 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 Paul. How zealous is I for the traditions of my fathers? That's what's wrong, Paul. Jesus himself said it. You undermine the words of the Bible with the traditions of man. Jesus would say it in the, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. For you've heard it said of old. But I say to you. Why is he having to clarify what the Old Testament was really saying? The traditions of man had warped it. Their teachings that they had continued to pass down from person to person to person. They want to criticize Paul about how he had received the gospel. He says, you received it from man and you received it from man and were taught by man. And it wasn't even the Bible. It was traditions. And yet you're going to try to undermine the gospel that I received from God himself. Don't you love this defense that he's giving? It's beautiful. It's clarity here. And just as Paul then begins to unpack this, just listen to Paul's testimony. Colossians chapter 3. We should just see the other epistles that Paul's writes as he begins to communicate and, and share. Colossians chapter 3. Um, let's see here. 
Actually, not Colossians. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Look what he says here. Though I myself have no reason for confidence in the flesh also... I mean, uh, uh, so in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You know what he's saying? All of those traditions did not bring me to faith in Christ. The works of the law cannot justify a man before God. I count all as loss. Acts chapter 2, Paul's recounting his testimony again. In Acts chapter 2, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 22. Listen to what it says here. Acts 22, beginning in verse 3 through 5. He says as he's now communicating them, he's trying to bring clarity uh, uh, to the gospel as he's beginning to, to preach and teach. And he says in verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Oh, he was a, a tremendous teacher of the law. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness, bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Look at my former life in Judaism. I was zealous. And all of that I consider as lost because why? I would be damned to hell. I would not be saved if I'd remained on that path. But because of the revelation of Jesus Christ, my life has been radically changed, which then leads us to the second point. The evidence of Paul's message was his life before Christ, which is full of Judaism. But now Paul's encounter with Christ. Paul's encounter with Christ. You see in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Paul begins to talk about how this zeal and all those personal pronouns, my and I, in, in verses 13 and 14. And then this amazing conjunction. I love this conjunction in the Bible. What does it say there in verse 15? First, first word. But. I love that conjunction. Right? What do conjunctions do? They join things together. Right? Joins things together. What does it join together? Sinful, rebellious man to sinless Holy God. But when he, speaking of God, who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now, what personal pronouns are you seeing there? Whereas his Understanding of religion and commitment and sincerity was all man-centered. What do you see now Paul's understanding? Was it man-centered as it was in verses 13 and 14? It was God-centered, was it not? But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, his life radically changed. That's why I said, when you speak the gospel, you've got to begin with God. And that's exactly what Paul does again and again and again with his clarity on the gospel, is it not? In Ephesians chapter 2, he begins to walk them through their understanding of the gospel. And so he wants to communicate their lostness. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then look at that conjunction, verse 4, but God. Oh, aren't you glad when God intersects us in our lives? We think we might be sincere and committed and zealous and religious, and we think we're doing right. But God. He pursues us. And yet you might not think you're religious. You may think you're an agnostic or an atheist. You may slip in here and you don't even know why God brought you here. You don't even have any credit to God bringing you here. And after you see this guy who spits a lot and it's really loud and it's very passionate, sitting on a stool, preaching this thing, and you go, I think he believes it. And so I might want to pay attention. And also you begin to hear this gospel and it begins to resonate with you. And you go, I don't know why I believe that. I don't think I believe this. I didn't believe this when I came here. Why am I getting to believe this? Let me tell you why. It is not because I'm persuasive. I promise you it's not. That will last all of five seconds. 
How do you, how do you know that pastor? I've been a preacher for 15 years. I've been trying to convince people for years and it hadn't worked. In this congregation, outside of this congregation, I've been trying to convince people and it hasn't worked. You know why? I have no ability to change a heart. And so if your eyes are beginning to be open, give God the glory. But this is your but God moment. And look at this verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us up seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, I love the but gods of the Bible. Titus chapter three, look at this in Titus three. He remind them to be submissive. Paul's writing to uh, Titus that the island of Crete, he should teach certain things. He says, remind them, Titus, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward, uh, courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then look at this in verse four again. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Oh, don't you love the but gods in the Bible? He saved us, not because of works done in us, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to, you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See, these good works is what you devote yourself after salvation, not because of, your, or because of salvation. You don't, you don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you're saved. And Paul's trying to make this very, very clear. And so Paul, in all that zealousness, had a but God moment. A but God moment. Look at Acts chapter 22 again. Acts chapter 22. I'd read to you before all the things he was doing. He was zealous. He was taught by Gamaliel, the feet of Gamaliel, and that he was uh, uh, strict in the manner of the, of, the, of the fathers, zealous for God as uh, all those who were there. He persecuted the way, binding and delivering people to prison, men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters uh, to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take, those, uh, to take those also who were with them and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That was his life beforehand. But now listen to his but God moment, verses 6 through 13. As I was on my way with these letters in hand, right? As he was journeying toward Damascus and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, how did Paul persecute Jesus? Jesus is in heaven at this time. How is he persecuting Jesus? Because he was persecuting the body of Christ. That's why Matthew chapter 25, he says, Whatever you do, the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. You clothe them, you feed them, you give them drink, you visit them in prison, you minister to the sick, you minister to the poor. You do unto them, you do it to me. As if you persecute them, you persecute me. And so Jesus is confronting him. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of, of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. Him being Ananias. What a but God moment. So Paul says, you want to tell that revelation of Jesus Christ that was in verse, four, uh, verse 15 in Galatians? Or verse 14 in Galatians? That's my moment. Right here. He explains in Acts chapter 9, explains again in Acts chapter 22. He's recounting his story. This is when God changed my life. But God. That was his life when he encountered Christ. And so he says, this message is evidenced by my life. Who I was before in Judaism 
and how I encounter Christ. And then lastly, Paul's purpose in Christ, which is why he's writing to the churches of Galatia to begin with. His purpose in Christ. Let's begin back in our original passage. Galatians chapter 1. And you begin to see Paul's purpose in verses 16 through 24. When Paul, who had been set apart before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's his purpose. To preach him among the Gentiles. And real quick before I go, I have to just say this. When it comes to your salvation, don't be scared about the fact that the but God moment begins with God. Remember I told you about all the personal pronouns of all. Look at what, what God's doing in this, in God's pursuit of us. He who had set me apart before I was born. Trust in God's sovereignty and his knowledge of who, what, he, what he, his plan is. Before Paul was born, God had a plan. And who called me by his grace. Who's doing the work there, Paul? Oh, God's called him. God's the one who's doing the work there. And was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul didn't say I was sought after God. Paul saying that God's the one who revealed his son to me. Now, here's the balance in the question people will begin to ask. Well, what about man's response? Man then not supposed to have a response about repentance and faith? No, the Bible says a man must repent and believe. But remember this. The work is the work that God's doing. I can't raise dead men. Ephesians 2, dead men. God's the one that has to make them alive and makes them alive. I just preach. And that's what Paul's simply doing here. I want to make sure you don't get a different gospel. I want to make sure the gospel is clear. God does the raising of the dead, not me. If not, if I believe it's up to me, man, I'm going to be a lot more, I desire far more the approval of man because why? I want to try to persuade you. I can't persuade you. I want to make sure I get the Bible right. And if I get the Bible right, I leave the results to God. And so I spend my time making sure I get the Bible right and trust God for the results. But it doesn't believe, man, I want to make sure I get the gospel right and I don't present the gospel. Many may want to criticize those who believe in the sovereignty of God. Man, you guys don't preach the gospel. Let me just tell you, last two weeks have been in middle school here locally, a high school here locally. There's about 10 of us last night passed it over 100 tracks. And that's not bragging. I'm not trying to boast on anything. I'm just trying to communicate. We believe a person doesn't hear the gospel. They won't be saved. But at the same time, I believe what Jonah 2.9 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And when you or I begin to believe that it's up to us to save people, we will begin to do things that the Bible doesn't commend or command. Don't water it down. You can be loving and gracious to just completely share the gospel and clearly present the gospel. But don't deceive people. Don't declare someone righteous. We have no ability and authority to say, you are saved. No, time will tell. Time will tell. If a believer rep- repents in front of me and prays and trusts Christ at that moment, I will encourage them. But they say, brother, am I saved right now? I can't say whether or not they are. I can say what the Bible says. But I can't look into their heart. Time will show them. I can say this. If there's been genuine repentance and faith. The Bible says that you're a believer. But I can't tell whether that's genuine repentance and faith. I will be able to see from now on whether you have a desire for the love of God, the fruit of the Spirit become evident in your life. You have a desire for the family of God. You have a desire to see the law saved. Those will be evidences, and we'll see. Time will tell if you've been made alive in Christ. But I can't make you alive, and I can't declare you alive. I can only, I can only judge fruits that are visible. And so Paul's purpose in Christ was to make sure this gospel gets preached. That's what he says there as he's continued to make this argument and debate. Listen, I didn't receive this from man or as I taught this to man. So when God gave me this mandate, he set me apart, called me to himself, and then mandated me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I didn't consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. And after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained in him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James. And skip down to verse 22. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he, speaking of Paul, who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And because of that, they glorified God because of me. Now, be careful, don't misread that to think Paul's being pompous. Who gets glory? And they glorified who? God, because of me. That's biblical. Hey, good sermon there, preacher. Here, typically, here's my response. To God be the glory. But you know what I'd much rather hear you say? 
Man, God was glorified in that sermon today, preacher. And to that, I will also say to God be the glory. We are here to glorify God. And Paul knows this. And so that's why he's aiming to to encourage them. Don't desert the gospel. You cannot glorify God in your life, in your home, in your marriage, with your children, at your work, with other believers, if the gospel is not center. That's the reason all this makes sense. Why the latter part of the book, and in all of Paul's writing, he begins with gospel, and then the outcomes of the gospel, the practice of the gospel, the methodology from the gospel, as he then tells people how this plays itself out. Even in Galatians, as he begins to walk through the fruit of the Spirit, is the result of the gospel. And so he says, I want you to be clear. The defense of the gospel is an aim for the approval of God so that the evidence is the glory of God. Do you see it? You really think I'm about the approval of man? My aim is the approval of God. Why is your aim the approval of God, Paul? Because if people repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in you and they all have but God moments like I did before I was saved, I was zealous for other things other than God. I encounter God and I live for God. What happens then? That person who's been converted now lives for the glory of God. And so if our aim is to please God by faith, then the outcome, if our aim is to, the, the, uh, to please God, our outcome is the glory of God. And that's exactly where this message begins. As Paul says, do you think I'm really trying to please man? If so, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. My aim is to be pleasing to God. And the outcome in verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Question for you this morning. Is your aim to be pleasing to God? That's why we strip things away here. And we know it's not pleasant. We understand. I understand. But I'm not here to please man. I'm here to please God. And the only way I know how to please God is to make sure I I preach what the word says. Why would you do that? Because it requires faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why would you do that? Because I want God to get glory that's due his name. And when we try to add anything to the gospel, whether to add works to it or believe our works is what creates salvation for someone else, both of those I will hammer. Because why? It robs God of his glory. Unto salvation, if we try to add works to salvation, we're saying Christ's work on the cross wasn't enough. And that will damn people to hell. And if I believe it's my works that will persuade somebody to be saved, I believe that the Spirit of God can't take the Word of God and be sufficient to bring people to Christ. And that's dangerous because then I'm going to rely upon my works and not Christ's Word. And we begin to undermine the Word of God. And so, question to you this morning. If you're a believer, is your aim to please God by faith? And in that, if it is, let me encourage you to remind you, Don't stray from the gospel. Let it inform you about how you do all of life. Relationship with Jesus, your context of your marriage, your relationships moving toward marriage, the context of your family and how you would steward your children, you would oversee your family, wives being submissive to husbands, husbands leading their wives and families well, how we would do church, how we would work in our community, how we'd minister to our bosses or if we're bosses to our employees. All of it is informed by the gospel. Is it your aim to be pleasing to him? And if your aim is to be pleasing to him, then are people glorifying God because of you? If the latter is not happening, then it makes me question where the former is happening as well. Meaning, if people aren't glorifying God because of you, maybe your aim isn't to be pleasing to him. And maybe you, like John chapter 12, are like many of the rulers and those in authority who desired the approval of man rather than the approval of God. So are you saying I'm not a believer, Pastor? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I want to caution you as the Apostle Paul cautioned the churches in Galatia to say, how so, I'm quick, I'm surprised, I'm astonished how so quickly you strayed and deserted the gospel. Does that mean you're not a believer? No. But I want to encourage you to return to the gospel. It's what saves you and it what keeps you saved. Not that I believe you can lose it. What I mean by that is if a person for years and years and years demonstrate a life of habitual practice of sin, then the Bible would say you've never been saved. And so your saving grace is also your keeping grace. Don't stray from the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us.
I thank you for Paul's defense of the gospel, that, Lord, it gives us a defense to answer those who would critique our Bible, that would critique our authority that we have in Christ and in Christ alone that's been revealed to us through this word. And I pray, Father, that you would aid us, that, Lord, like the Apostle Paul, our aim would be to be pleasing to you more than man. And we know that man and its autonomy, a man and its self-righteousness, is going to kick against the goads. It's going to want to undermine everything that would give God glory. And so we just exalt the gospel. It's what transforms hearts and lives, and we trust you with that gospel message. Help us to keep our lives centered around it, and our relationships with, with God the Father through Christ, and our relationships with our, and, our, and within our homes, within our marriages, or with our children, or our children to our parents. Lord, in the relationships of our community, relationships within our faith family, the relationships with our extended family, relationships with our bosses and our, and our workplaces and our school systems and a variety of other places you allow us to interact. We pray the gospel would be front and center. And that, Lord, that you would aid us. Lord, that in that aim to desire you, just to be pleasing to you, that, Lord, our lives would then reflect the glory of God and others would glorify you because of us. And that, Father, we'd be quick to share the story of what our life was like before Christ, when we encountered Christ, and the purpose of our lives since Christ. And our testimonies would be quick upon our mouths. And if there's any in here who has never been saved, I pray that, God, you'd open their hearts and minds to turn from sin and place their faith and trust in you. And I pray they would see Pastor Tim, who will be giving our final announcements here in a moment. They would join me in the pastor's reception, or they'd ask another person, maybe even one who had invited him to, uh, them to this place this morning. They would seek out. And they would turn to you why they might find favor and that they would not harden their hearts. But today may be the day of salvation. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.